Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, but today, I turn my attention to the movies as I examine 1983's adaptation of Man's Best Friend Turned Evil, Cujo. So, as you know, I reviewed, or maybe you don't know, I don't know, I don't know if you listened to last week or not, but if this is your first time tuning in, thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the Stephen King cast. Um, and if you tuned in last week, you'll know that my review of Cujo, the, the novel, was uh, was not the most positive of reviews. Um, you know, please note that uh, when Stephen King wrote it, he was very much under the influence and, and does not remember writing uh, the novel. Um, and... He, with that said, I, I, the fact that he was able to write a novel under the influence is a real testament to his abilities as a writer. But at the same time, I think there are some major flaws um, in the novel. And I think that it's just it's a very, very dark book. Uh, so I, I wasn't really looking forward to, to watching the movie again. Um, and this is just so you know, I'm recording it the same week that I recorded the Firestarter movie uh, at a review, uh, a movie that I... <laughs> Didn't really like, to say the least. Um, so I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't like I said, really looking forward to this. But, you know, I mean, I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, so I'm just going to get into uh, the review. Uh, and immediately, we are given a haunting opening. Uh, and I, I really enjoy it. I, right away, it, it just, it sets a good tone. Uh, we, we see swirling red as it fills the screen with, with ominous music over it much more foreboding than, than say, the, the Tangerine Dream scored opening to Firestarter, which just felt out of place and, and failed to, to capture the paranoia and suspense of that particular story. There's a, a real dread to this opening, you know, appropriate for what I feel was King's most pessimistic story so far. The darkness then pulls away, revealing a small rabbit hole from which emerges a uh, cute little bunny who proceeds to frolic through the woods, streams, and the fields. It's a very peaceful opening that sets up um, the horrors that are soon to come, as well as gives us an idea of the landscape surrounding Castle Rock. The peace and tranquility uh, that's been established is quickly brought to an end when Cujo's paws fill the frame. It's a very clever shot, uh, and it really sets up the threat of Cujo before Cujo becomes a threat to our characters. While we don't want anything to happen to the rabbit, I mean, who wants to hurt a rabbit? We understand why Cujo chases after him. It's nature, after all, and shows that despite the bloodthirstiness of this movie, all that happens is because of the reality of nature, which is more terrifying than any ghost or vampire that you can throw at us. We get an idea of Cujo's personality right away. Now, whether it's intentional or whether it was just because uh, it was a happy dog, um that was acting, uh, you know, I mean, just chasing after a treat. I mean, Kujo's also, he, he looks playful. You know, he looks more like he's having fun, you know, just chasing the rabbit. And he doesn't really look like he wants to catch up to it. So I don't know, like I said, I don't know if that's intentional um, or if it's not intentional, but that's that's the personality of, of Kujo as captured on film. And of course he chases the, 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 the rabbit right into the, the bat's nest. Um, and hearing Cujo whine is just hard to listen to. And it's not just Cujo, it's just any animal in peril, especially dogs. Um, you know, so it, I'll be honest, it wasn't a scene that I really liked watching. Um, 
But, uh, you know, what is interesting is he manages to pull his head out, you know, before being bitten. And then he chooses to dart back in to attack the bats. It's a moment of hubris. And uh, in that moment, he pays for, um, you know, he pays for it with his life and, you know, his soul, really, which is corrupted because of the rabies. So I just thought that was a very interesting um, moment that is later mirrored with, um, with Donna making a decision when given a chance to leave uh, the, the farm, the garage. She she decides to just talk trash to Cujo, um, and then the Pinto, you know, stalls out on her. And I wonder if it would have stalled out had she just gotten away at that particular moment. But I'll get to that later. Um, after Cujo gets bitten on the nose, we meet Tad, um, you know, who was presented to us as the every child. He's afraid of the dark. And the director, who is Louis Teague, by the way, he does a, he does a pretty good job at creating the tension you know, that, that comes from simply shutting off the bedroom light. Tad's race across the bedroom, which seems to have lengthened with the shadows once the lights have turned off, is something that we can all relate to. It's, it's, it's not a bad scene. You know, it, it, in fact, it's, it's, a, you know, it's, it's a plus in the column of, of the director for, for being able to... I just There's a scene, and it's just... Uh, Tad has our back to us, um, and then we, we see the, um, the bedroom with all the lights off and like I said it just seems to have lengthened and you just you feel the child's fear at that moment very very effectively so kudos to, to Lewis Teague for that there's a couple moments in here that are um you know I, I throw the word effective around a lot you know that's that's my own you know Stephen Kingism so to speak but uh it is it is it is a very effective uh technique and he has a couple of them um in this movie so anyway um, while he's under the safety of the bedsheets, um, Tad watches in horror as the closet door swings open, revealing tar-like blackness. It's a, it's a widening mouth ready to swallow Tad whole. You know, he then gets a speech from his father about how there aren't any real monsters, but of course Tad isn't truly convinced. Now, it's a scene that's lifted from the book, uh, but I need to point out that it doesn't work as well due to the fact that the book imbued it with a supernatural menace because no matter what the father said there really was a monster in the closet it was the evil force that had taken the shape of a police officer turned serial killer named frank dodd and it will soon take the form of a rabid dog this force is an intelligent malevolence that means to do harm and when it's in the closet it's just teasing its neck victim it works in the book because king is able to explore the idea of evil as a force of nature a mutating presence that can take many forms. It works in the book because the novel is a thematic sequel to the events depicted in The Dead Zone. Without the murders in The Dead Zone to be able to be addressed, the filmmakers aren't able to explore this concept. So really the closet door is just a closet door. So what does it really provide for the film? A nice little moment of creepiness to, to show that a young boy is afraid of a bedroom door opening? Of course he is. He's a kid. Who wouldn't be? See, in the book, the closet door... Um, and the monster within meant so much more. But here, it's just a closet door. So this is uh, it's just an example of something working a little bit better um, in the book because there's just there's more texture to it. We then learn of Donna's infidelity and Vic's realization that something's wrong. 
illustrated in an awkwardly silent dinner scene that makes me think that the screenwriter then took tips from the Mark Lester's Firestarter adaptation by having Vic say everything that we are picking up without having him to blurt it out. This marriage is running out of conversation, he says, after the director clearly established that without having to say it. By forcing it from Vic's mouth ruins the subtlety of the moment and lets out the tension that had begun to build. With the infidelity a secret between them, every word not spoken is a relief from the truth getting out. Every potential word is Vic's admission of knowledge or Donna's confession of adultery. By having Vic utter the obvious, the words themselves are rendered powerless. And what, if could, what could have been a, a tension-filled scene suddenly finds itself without any teeth. Tad begins to uh, then pretend he's the shark from Jaws, which I think is a really nice shout-out, establishing whether it's the unintentional or the intentional inspiration for this movie. Because, as I've said before, this this is just... This is Jaws meets Lassie, right? Um, you know, it, it's it's... All you want to do is just substitute uh, the shark with a Saint Bernard, um, and it's just it's it's man versus nature. When they take the car to the Cambers garage, uh, the scene when Donna spots Cujo is filled with a dread and a creeping fear, or at least that's clearly what Louis Teague was going for. But you know she is clearly freaked out by this dog and doesn't want Danny to be near it. But the the music just. The music tries to guide our emotions, um, and I think that we're supposed to get a dangerous vibe or, or the potential of danger from Cujo, but all I see is this happy-looking dog trotting over to the family, his tail wagging, his tongue sticking out. Um, you know, Donna fixes in on the cut on Cujo's nose, uh, you know, and I get what Louis Teague is trying to do. Um, he's trying to fixate on this one tiny cut, you know, a nagging suspicion, but... I, to me, that that just doesn't it, it doesn't really work for me. We then follow Vic in the throes of a crisis when the serial epidemic occurs, and again, with a page straight out of the Firestarter movie, explicitly states the scene that wasn't subtle to begin with. Uh, just to put it in a, in a little bit of perspective, I'm gonna I'm gonna play a clip, but before I do, um, so what happens is. Uh, Vic is the Don Draper, right, of, of this particular ad campaign for a, a prominent serial um, in, in the country. You know, I mean, it, it is, you know, the, 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 the Cocoa Pebbles or the, the Frosted Flakes, the Rice Krispies of the Stephen King universe here um, with a pretty terrible, uh, um, you know, gimmick of a, you know, rather than a toucan or a, a leprechaun um, or a tiger, it's a boring middle-aged professor uh it's very unimaginative regardless um these are the the ad geniuses who came up with this one and the the something that the food dye is causing children to um throw up and uh it looks like they're throwing up blood and pee blood and so there's this this crisis in in the in the cereal company and all of this was conveyed through the uh news story which opened this particular scene and in case we didn't get what was going on Vic tells us exactly what's going on in one of those incredibly forced bits of exposition that stand out as um, examples of 
a way that that no one really talks in real life. Um, and then having just come off the the review of the Firestarter movie, I'm just very very conscientious of of this type of just expository dump. That's our ad campaign. They've recalled the whole goddamn series. There's no harm done, is there? No harm done. Donna, that guy comes into America's living room and he says to kids, he says, trust me. I understand. No, I don't think you do. You see, we created that guy, Roger and me. He's our brainchild. I understand. And these kids, they go out and they buy the cereal, all the sharp cereals, all of them. Brand 16, all grain, Cocoa Bears, Twinkles. And now, kids all over the country are peeing and puking red dye and scaring the hell out of their parents, and we told them to buy it. The sharp professor is us. That's our ass. Roger's in mine. You'll work it out. You always have before. Uh, I'm a firm proponent of just changing things, uh, you know, when a, a, a movie is based on, on a novel. Because I believe that what works in one medium doesn't necessarily work in another. So this movie had my blessing to make a great number of changes. And with the exception of one notable change at the end of the movie, um, this is basically an unoriginal recreation of, a, uh, of the book that includes, and let me stress this, okay? A time-consuming subplot involving a children's serial scandal. Every moment spent on the serial scandal is a complete waste of screen time. I didn't care about it in the book, and I don't care about it in the movie. In a movie about a rabid dog, we just don't need a subplot involving cereal. Okay, so Donna's car starts to putter, right? And we realize what's going to happen. She's going to bring it to get it fixed at the Cambers garage. This is just after Vic had his car fixed. Um, so Vic had his car fixed simply so that there was a reason for Donna to bring her car to the mechanics in the middle of nowhere, right? Here's my issue. I don't need a backstory to how Donna found her mechanic. All I need is for Donna to arrive at the auto shop. That's the only thing that matters to me, right? In, in a story that's probably Stephen King's most concise, and think about this, rabid dog threatens a mother and son. That's it. There is a ridiculous amount of backstory. The story even comes complete with the abusive nature of the Cambers lottery win. Really? We don't need this. All right? You know, you could have cut out all of the infidelity. You could have cut out, you know, the, the serial scandal. You could have just, there are, like I said in the novel, just streamline it and just get Donna to the garage. And that's really all you need to do. Um, it's just, and, and you know what? Here we go. I would like to see a remake of this movie. I would like to see a remake in which the, the, the director does just that. You know, he streamlines it, you know, he, he cuts it down, he cuts out all of the fat, you know, maybe Donna, you know, isn't having, you know, a, uh, you know, affair. Maybe she's a single parent. Maybe she's struggling to, you know, make ends meet and she drives her car into the, the garage, you know, with her son. Um, and when she drives it in, no one's there. Okay. And all of a sudden she starts getting attacked by this rabid dog, you know, that, and you could just cut out everything else and just focus on that. And I think that that would be just a tense, tense um, movie. But instead, you know, we get this. Um, oh, well. But anyway, again, you know, um, the lottery, you know, I mean, with a movie that's about a rabid dog threatening a mother and son, what does a lottery 
have to do with anything? What does cereal have to do with anything? You know, in the grand scheme of things, what does an affair have to do with anything? It's just a dog trying to kill a mother and son. That's the story that I want to to watch. That was the story that I wanted to read. I don't need any of this other stuff. Sorry, I, I can't get off of it. I'll just switch gears. I'll switch gears. Um, what do I want to talk about? What do I, yeah, okay. Uh, Cujo's snout. All right. Why is it covered in slime? You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't remember, um, you know, rabies causing ectoplasm to ooze out from the pores of... Uh, you know, the, the animals that have just been bitten. But our Cujo doesn't just have rabies. You know, he, he just he just sweats, just gross, oozing slime. Anyway, um, you know, I'm kind of coming down on this movie, but, you know, what, what Louis Teague captures is it very effectively is the growing hold of the rabies, you know, over Cujo. You know, Cujo looks miserable, and it's clear that every sound is just eating away at his sanity. You know, um... And another thing that he does very, very well, you know, I I gave him a hard time earlier for the expository dump uh, of the serial um, and how he just kind of blurted out, you know, in a scene that didn't need it about how the, the marriage is, is running out of conversation, i.e. the marriage is in trouble. But the scene with Steve and Donna in the kitchen, uh, after she fights him off and, and he leaves, Vic comes back in. And it's a great moment. It's done very, very well. Vic and Donna just look at each other. And Vic does the exact opposite of every character in Firestarter and doesn't speak about all of his concerns or his growing suspicions. He doesn't remind the audience that the two are married and have a child together. He barely speaks, in fact, because he doesn't have to. Louis Teague has done the job for us, showing us the infidelity and the growing distance between the two. So really, all Vic has to say is exactly what he says. And all he says is... Yes or no. The scene is that much harder to watch because of its minimalism. It's a great decision on Teague's part, and it works very, very well. You know, and she just says yes, and that's all that needs to be conveyed because everything that wasn't conveyed, um, you know, it wasn't conveyed in words, but it had been conveyed to the audience. Now, then it cuts back to uh, the Cambers house, and when Brett, the, the boy, steps out of the house... Um, into the fog. It's something straight out of a, well, I well, straight out of a horror movie. <laughs> uh, the fog is thick, and all you can hear is is the growling and moans of the dog. Now a beast. The scene could easily take place in a werewolf movie, and goes a long way in establishing the danger of the dog. And I feel, if you think about it, it's also a sad scene, you know, with a boy having to say goodbye to his dog, who is soon gonna finally succumb to the madness. Cujo's threatening. You know, he's growling, he's barking at his best friend, but he still has enough self-control to turn away. And I think that as he slinks into the mist, it's the last we see of the friendly family dog. The dog that returns from the mist is a monster. With Cujo's first attack, which comes shortly after, I realize that what works in the story um, is the perception of Cujo as more than a dog, right? A hell beast, an honest-to-God monster. On the page, you can imagine Cujo being any size, right? He can be a rabid, giant St. Bernard. We don't have to ask any questions. In the movie, they slobber him up, but he's still just a St. Bernard. And at no point um, does he truly look like a monster monster, right? In, in terms of size, like they, he does become blood-drenched and he looks horrific, um, you know, covered in slime and everything, Um so he looks hellish, 
but I, I just focusing on his size, he doesn't look giant, and it doesn't help that that Gary, his first victim, is a large guy, you know. So I mean, with with Cujo's first attack, it it just it makes Cujo look smaller than he actually is. If they had cast another actor of a lesser size, you know, a wiry guy, it would have played up Cujo's bulk. But um, you know, and and then demonstrated what a physical threat the now rabid dog is. You know, sizing him up against a physically imposing grease monkey, you know, downplays that size. You know, in fact, you know, he even looks small when Joe Campers is attacked. Attacked, by the way, with Cujo vision. And then, you know, after that point, the real movie begins. The movie that I wanted to spend more time with. Um, and that's, you know, Donna and Tad stuck in the Pinto as Cujo waits patiently outside. There's a harrowing moment where Cujo first attacks trying to get in through the window and a terrified Tad is just screaming with an exasperated Donna desperately trying to keep control of the situation now D. Wallace, D. Wallace Stone um, does a phenomenal job at providing much needed nuance into the movie um, providing a multitude of different emotions in such a short little scene first it's irritation at her screaming son which flickers across her face then replaced by a moment of panic then replaced by the resolve to remain calm. It's quick, it's subtle, and very effective. And it's just the beginning of what is an incredible uh, performance that isn't really talked about um, in Stephen King, you know, performances. Of course, you know, in, in the grand scheme of, of Stephen King um, adaptations, people tend to talk about Sissy Spacek. They talk about Jack Nicholson. They talk about Kathy Bates. They talk about Tim Curry. Uh... But they, they, they tend not to talk about, you know, D. Wallace Stone, uh, who Stephen King says is the greatest performance of any of his adaptations. And, you know, she does a solid, solid job. But anyway, soon after, um, Don is able to get the car started. <laughs> and like I said earlier, she has to just go and start talking trash to St. Bernard and immediately the car stops. Um and it's just like almost like the universe saying, you know, like, I got your back. I got your back. What are you doing? Stop talking trash. You know what? Never mind. Never mind. You're going to stay here with this dog. Um, and Teague, you know, like I said earlier, he, he really demonstrates some talent, you know, behind the camera, especially when he keeps the camera in the car with, uh, with Tad and Donna, you know, closing in on D. Wallace's eyes, highlighting the suffocating heat of the Pinto. You know, everything soon becomes covered in a film of sweat and slime. As a viewer, I feel trapped in the car. I feel sticky and sweaty and unclean. You know, and he also does a really good job at uh, demonstrating Cujo's rage at the ringing telephone. The blood-drenched dog battering the car because of just the, 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 the noise of the telephone driving him to insanity is a scene that I didn't think would, uh, would work outside of the page, but here it works very effectively. Cujo is relentless, shoving his bloody snout through the window uh, gap. Um, before long, it's Donna versus Cujo with a screaming, uh, helpless Tad in the back seat. And it's a brutal scene. It's primal, it's raw, and it's hard to watch. When she's able to fend off Cujo and close the door, we are given um, the probably one of the most popular uh, scenes from this movie, uh, and, and basically what happens is Teague revolves the camera from inside the Pinto, um, from Donna to Tad, from Donna to Tad, slowly increasing the speed as we watch Donna slip into unconsciousness and Tad looking more and more like a ghost from a Japanese horror movie, 
all the while showing just how small the inside of the car is. It's a gripping, horrific scene, and it doesn't need blood or a rabid dog to keep you on the edge of your seat. Okay, another scene that's just as just you know nerve-wracking. It's the scene of Tad's seizure. All right, just um, Donna comes to because Tad's making these noises, and just we see the shot of Tad's upside-down face. Right, his eyes are rolling into the back of his head, and his open mouth. It's, it's all horrifying, and she sells the hell out of this scene, ignoring the rabbit dog at the window, focusing everything on her son, even though she's bordering on delirium herself, her voice just as raspy as sandpaper. You know, she, she makes it through um, another night, and then she finds Ted, um, Tad dead, you know, the, the next morning, and it's the most horrifying thing in the movie. Bruised, beaten, bitten, she exits the car in a final showdown with the dog, fueled by a mother's protection and an even more dangerous rage. Armed with only a baseball bat, she's just as lethal as the dog himself. In fact, Cujo doesn't stand a chance. She defeats the St. Bernard, and thankfully, thankfully, which I kind of hinted at at the top of the, the podcast, in a redemptive scene, Donna um, resuscitates Tad writing the wrong that Stephen King had committed in the novel. Even King regrets killing Tad in the book, and his resurrection in the movie is a decision on his part to fix the mistake that he had made. As I've stated before, Tad's death is one of King's most horrific moments, and I'm glad that he had the chance to make this right. So, all in all, it's not a good movie, really, but it's not a bad one either. There are a lot of good moments and a credible hand behind the camera. It's just that the story isn't sufficient to fill its 90-minute running time. You know, D. Wallace gives us gives everything to this movie, and it helps unbelievably. Louis Teague manages to make us feel like we're trapped in the Pinto with them and delivers some truly effective moments as he films the physical deterioration of Tad, Donna, and even Cujo. But ultimately, it's a thin movie, with only a 59% rating at Rotten Tomatoes and not really its well-received one. With that said, it's certainly better than Firestarter, in my opinion, Salem's Lot. So I'm going to get into the book versus movie and, and what, what's better here. So um, start up with the, the characters. Vic, you know, who's better? The book Vic or movie Vic? Um, it doesn't really matter because he's a nothing character in both mediums. So even though I'm supposed to declare a victor to me, both characters are losers. Tad. Uh, though Jonathan Bauer does a fine job as the helpless Tad. I think the book Tad is more tormented and more vulnerable than his cinematic counterpart. So I'm going to go with, with Tad, um, the, 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 the book on this one. Cujo. Now look, uh, nothing against the dogs in the movie, but because of what a book is and what it's able to do and what Stephen King is able to do, you know, he actually makes Cujo a character. You know, we get into his head. We feel Cujo's pain and his anguish and... You know, we, we even his just hopes, you know, all he wants to be is a good dog. Um, we, we don't get that, and that's not a knock on Louis Teague. It's just that we can't get that, not not to the extent that we can in the book, and this is definitely a clear example of how, oh, you know, the, the book can, can just kind of bring us further to places that, that a movie can't go. Um, so I'm going to have to go with the book on this one. And uh, then what do we have? We have Donna. So there, there's book Donna and movie Donna, and I'm going to go with Dee Wallace. She's phenomenal in this movie. She's great. 
you know she's able to bring so much to this role to a character that i didn't really like in the book you know she makes this character um human and fallible um she makes her uh sympathetic uh, which is incredibly tricky because, you know, the first thing that we learn about her is that, you know, she, she's having this affair. Um, but, I mean, I, I really, really feel for her, you know, and she does everything she possibly can do and she does everything, you know, very, very well. She's not some, you know, hapless heroine, you know, she's, you know, pretty strong. So I'm going to go with, with Donna. But uh, ultimately, uh, I, what to me works better, the book or the movie? And I'm going to go with the book. Which is saying something because I, I'm not a big fan of the book. Uh, <laughs> but like I said, it, it's not really the movie's fault. I just I wish that the movie had made some significant changes to the the bulk of the story, um, removing what I believe to be you know extraneous fat. But other than that, it's uh, it was an enjoyable experience watching. Um, much more enjoyable watching than than it was reading. So I mean, even my. <clears throat> My proclamation that I feel as though the, the book is better, um, it's interesting because I just enjoyed the movie more. Um, so would I recommend it? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not bad. Uh, and there's definitely some, some good stuff, and it's, it's definitely worth it watching for, for D. Wallace. So that's all I got for this week, everyone. If you, um, you know, want to sh- you know, chime in your thoughts on, on Cujo, either the book or the movie, or anything having to do with, with Stephen King... Uh, you know, please write in to Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. Uh, feel free to uh, you know check us out on on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, Pinterest, Twitter, all at Stephen Kingcast. Um, and if you have some free time on your hands, feel free to give us a review. And I say us. I always say us. I don't know why. It's just I'm flying solo on this. Um, yeah, feel free to to write a review on iTunes. Um, because I think that the more um, reviews that, that I get, um, the more uh, wide the net of conversation will be for, for Stephen King. So thanks for tuning in, everyone. Um, you know, Join us next week for our next review. <laughs> uh, and it is a good one, I have to say. Um, this is the next week's review is one that I was really, really looking forward to, to getting around to. Um, and I wanted to make sure that I got it right. And I don't want to toot my own horn or anything, but I'm, I'm feeling pretty strong about next week's review and the following week's review because this is going to be a two-part review of The Dark Tower, book one, the gunslinger so for those of you dark tower fans that have been waiting for this moment here we go we are going to begin we're taking our first steps across the desert uh together into the realm of the dark tower as we pursue our man in black Um, so make sure that that you tune in next week for that and tune in the following week for part two of the gunslinger review Thanks again, everyone, for for coming in this week, and I'll see you here next week. Same King time, same King channel, Stephen King cast.